0: Do you ever feel like there just isn't enough time to let kids play with math? To let them explore the meaning of math word problems before solving them? Today's guests talk all about a metaphorical sandbox that gives children the space and time to play, explore, engage, represent, and translate word problems into something that's meaningful to them. We'll also learn about operational sense, using five different mathematical representations and strategies to bring back to your teaching colleagues. One definition to note is about bare number problems. These involve equations without context, such as solving 3 plus 5 or 4 times 6. Now, Let's get ready to dig into the Mathematizing Sandbox. Welcome to the Kids Math Talk podcast, where in each episode, we give parents and educators practical tips and insights that will deepen mathematical understanding while also encouraging the conversation about math to remain active and positive. I'm your host, Desiree Harrison, elementary math coach, and Kids Math Talk founder. Today on the podcast, we have two of the authors of the book series Mathematize It, going beyond keywords to make sense of word problems. We are focusing on the grades K through two of the book series, but welcome to Kids Math Talk. Thanks so much. I'm
1: Sarah Delano Moore. In my day job in my regular work, I'm vice president of research and content at Orgo Education. I live in Kent, Ohio, and I really focus my thinking about mathematics and children on the idea of how children use multiple representations and especially manipulatives to represent their work. How do we help kids make their thinking clear, even when they don't have the formal notation to do that? I also am a big fan of picture books. Kim?
2: Hi, I'm Kimberly Morrow-Leong. I'm in Fairfax, Virginia. I'm a former fifth grade teacher and a middle school teacher and also a K-8 coach. Um, Currently, I'm a content manager at the Math Learning Center. I'm interested in how teachers engage with what students are doing. How do they make sense of what student thinking is and then make instructional decisions afterwards?
0: All right. Thank you, ladies, for those introductions. And I'm just really excited to sit down with you all. We've been planning this for a little while, so it's just exciting to to have you both on and um, to chat about this book series. And moving away from keywords is something that you hear about all the time, and it's something that we have to keep talking about. And while some people might associate this conversation with just upper elementary or even um, waiting until middle school, teachers and parents of lower elementary children and even children as young as five and six years old need to be a part of this concept shift conversation. And in the introduction, you will start this conversation by unpacking the term mathematizing. And so this is a, a word that has been emerging more and more in literature, and we've talked about it in previous episodes of the podcast. And the layer that you all add, which I find really fascinating, and which is one recurring theme of your book series, is the idea of playing in this mathematizing. Sandbox. So tell us, how do you define mathematizing, and why is it important to play in this mathematizing sandbox that you all have created for us?
2: Oh, I'd love to answer that. So the idea of mathematizing, I, I've just like you said, Desiree, it, it has um, many places where people talk about the word. The way we think about the word has to do with that place in between reading a problem and understanding it and then doing some sort of calculation to figure out what the actual answer is. And that space in between there is the process of making sense of what's really going on and how can the math help me to make sense of the situation. So it's a little bit in reverse. We're doing these Story problems or word problems or even mathematical modeling we're doing for the purpose of making sense of mathematics and so the let's say let's say you get a word problem let's look at it that way you get a word problem and, and and students are trying to make sense of it and somebody says it's saying we should do this and somebody else says no it's saying it should we should do that and mathematizing asks us to stop and think about well what's really happening here and how can our math tools are adding and are subtracting later our multiplication and division apply to this problem? Which one makes most sense to try to solve the problem? And so, mathematizing is translating what you see in the world into what you can actually do to do a calculation and solve it. And I'll let Sarah talk about the mathematizing sandbox itself, the whole process.
1: Thanks, Kim. The idea of the sandbox is that when we mathematize, we need some time and some space and some tools to play with the ideas and to play with the situation. We we enter the sandbox from a lens of reading comprehension. I've looked at a word problem. I've looked at a situation. I've pulled something from a picture book. And I want to know first, does it make, does the language make sense to me? That's that access point that's necessary but not sufficient for making sense of the mathematics. And then as we go into the sandbox, we explore using all of the different representational tools that we have. Using manipulatives, drawing pictures, thinking about the math and representing the math and what's happening in lots of different ways. We're building an idea of operation sense. We talk a lot about number sense, but operation sense is the idea that children know the work of the operations they can represent them all, they can think flexibly about them, regardless of the kind of number. In primary grades, we're always generally working with small whole numbers. Take that same problem, drop in a fraction in the upper grades, it's a completely different scenario. A student with strong operation sense, which starts in the primary grades, isn't thrown by that fraction appearing in the same way. So we're using what we know about the operations. We're using the representations we have in the sandbox to explore and figure out just what Kim said. How do we use our mathematics to know what's going on in this problem? And we have that aha moment that lets us say, oh, I get it. I've got these groups and I'm combining the groups. In adult language, we might think about that as part, part, whole. So here's how I can create a number sentence. Here's how I can represent what's going on so that I know how to get an answer. And at that moment of aha, we kind of come out of the sandbox. We wind up our open exploration and move more towards formally solving the problem.
2: When I worked with teachers as a coach, one of the conversations we always had was the difference between a takeaway and a distance. So if we're trying to understand what subtraction does, we have to see that, okay, so subtraction can do a lot of things. And one of them is it can just say, here's a set of objects. This could be my little counting bears, and I need to take some of the bears away. And that makes sense, and that's a model of subtraction that a lot of people are familiar with, but subtraction can do more than that. Subtraction can also tell you what's the difference between your number of bears and my number of bears and give us an answer. So we're going to turn that around a little bit more and say that we can also represent those same two problems using addition because what we're trying to understand is not so much the subtraction or the addition, we're trying to understand that a problem can be a comparison. And you're comparing your bears to my count of bears, or it can be that action, that literal action, like Sarah was saying, that you can add something together or you can take it away. And so we're trying to reframe the conversation about operations to talk more about what they do in a context and how the operations can help us make sense of it.
1: Sometimes we talk about them as the job of the operation. And each of the core operations has a number of jobs. And so we want to give students experience thinking about one of the jobs of subtraction is when something leaves, that takeaway idea. Another job of subtraction is that idea of distance or difference. And how do we help students know all of those different jobs so they recognize them when they appear in the world?
0: Kim, when you were first, Speaking, when you said the place between reading and understanding, my mind went to some conversations and some readings that I've done that actually aren't specifically tied to mathematics, but it's tied to coaching and tied to um, emotional responses and um, emotional intelligence and thinking about the space between stimulus and response. And I just like made a connection there, like the stimulus could potentially be some of the reading comprehension and these problems when you're entering the sandbox. And then that explores that space between the stimulus and response and just like breaking that open. And really um, what I see this book doing is helping teachers think deeply about the math practices without like listing the math practices, but thinking about how to truly, like the truly the how of the implementation of them so that teachers aren't thinking that this is just something, one more extra thing that I have to do in my classroom. Like I have to think about the habits of mine. And now I have to think about the tools and like thinking about all these things separately. But you're helping us think about how to integrate everything and make it more cohesive and fluid and, um, and natural, which is that's something that we really need in, um, in our field because it's something that we haven't had previously. And not to say that different authors haven't been trying to implement that, but it's just you all have it um, that much more refined and can help us progress even further.
2: When I think about the times that I've been in primary classrooms, I'm always struck by how careful the teachers are about introducing a text of any kind. Um, It either could be uh, a storybook or it could be a nonfiction text of some sort. And the teachers always stop and they, they assess comprehension. They try to make sure that students have understand this, understood the story. And maybe there's pictures to go along with it or some sort of visual aid or some way that the students can engage with the story. And I find that we don't do this as much in mathematics. Is that When we have a situation, like students say, I wonder what we could do to recycle or to do more recycling in our school to take that action of quantifying it. What does it take mathematically to actually figure out how much you are already recycling? How much more could you recycle? And what would that look like? What would it take to turn that into a mathematical situation? And if the more practice we do with that kind of thought just like we do with thinking about what was a character thinking or what do you think that character might do next in a story these are the natural kinds of questions that teachers ask that we can ask them in math too
0: so what you were just saying kim is like a perfect segue into my next question actually because um i'm just thinking some more about Entering the Mathematizing Sandbox. And you all say in your book, like, teachers and students are encouraged to explore their thinking with mathematical stories and um, getting more uh, math in context and how, like, the, these word problems are perfect, a perfect um, match for. For getting deep into storytelling and mathematical modeling. And um, you all talk about the difference between context and computation. So, can you expand on this idea for our listeners, please?
1: Of course. Um, And I should probably say at this point, my husband's a reading educator. So, some of my thinking about this is informed by that rubbing off knowledge of, of literacy that I've gained over the years. When we talk about computation, we're talking about skills manipulating naked numbers. And all too often, if kids skip that space between that exploration in the sandbox, they read a word problem, they number pluck, as John Sangiovanni says, and they start computing with the numbers based on what they know how to do or what chapter they're in or what they think is going on and start just Computing without reflecting on the role of the context. And part of what the sandbox does is ask us to think about mathematical comprehension, reading comprehension. We're, we're, I'll play off of Kim's example of recycling. Um, if I'm reading a text about recycling, that might spur this question of how much do we recycle as a school? Could we do more? There's some understanding I need to have of that text from a language perspective. Both skills, can I can I say the words? Do I understand the, the way the sentences are organized? Can I make sense of it com- comprehensionally? And then mathematically, I need to make sense of it. I need to think about, well, what do I need to know to know how much we recycle as a school? Do we need to count the number of milk cartons that end up in the recycling bin? Do we do that by how much they weigh? How do we think about that? And that's context. We want to encourage kids to, and, and adults to work in context, to think about what's happening and make sense of it. We often talk when we compute about ideas like the commutative property. And I'll use an early multiplication example here. If I'm ordering flowers from the florist for a party and I want eight vases that each have three flowers each and the florist only sends me three vases that each have eight flowers, the florist says, I sent you 24 flowers. I'm thinking I've got eight tables and only three bouquets. While the product computationally is equivalent, three groups of eight, eight groups of three, contextually the meaning's quite different. When I situate it in that setting, and particularly for young learners, it needs to make sense. And so when we push kids too quickly towards computationally, it's the same answer, never mind, they lose that urge to make sense of the mathematics, and we want them to make sense of the mathematics, to comprehend it, just as much as we want them to comprehend the language.
0: How you started answering that question, I find really interesting about the making connections between literacy and math, because the more connections that we can make, the, the stronger the context will be, but also the more engaged teachers will become, because then they they will be able to make more connections to Instructional strategies that they're already using in their classroom, and think about how they can just like potentially adapt that to include some of the um, mathematical concepts and the mathematical comprehension that you're speaking to. The context is everything. And then the the examples that you all are giving, it doesn't have to be this um, like massive undertaking to think about all these like grandiose scenarios. And it also, you can build the context and background and shared understanding in your classroom. The context doesn't always have to come from an experience a kid has had before they've entered the classroom. You can create a scenario and then use that scenario to build off of and and get into the sandbox with that shared experience.
2: I'd like to pick up on what Sarah said earlier. Um, She gave the example of the multiplication situation and the difference between eight times three and three times eight, this is also true in addition. So let's say, for example, you're preparing a meal for two family members and then eight more people show up. The way you think about what you have to do next is very different to take a set of two and to add eight more people is a one kind of situation. But imagine if you were preparing for eight people and two people showed up. The kinds of thinking is you're going to do is different in that context. It feels very different to add eight more people when you started with two than to add two when you started with eight.
0: Yeah, it absolutely does. And then to help kids have that exploration in space, it can't be a worksheet, but then it also like can't be like so many problems that students and teachers Feel like they have to just like keep skipping ahead to stay like on this, on this like given, like predetermined pace because it just doesn't work like real life doesn't work like that.
1: There's got to be time to take advantage of the moment. When a child comes in class and tells a story about what happened at home last night that sparks that mathematizing moment, when you're reading a story or talking about an idea in science or looking at A map and asking questions about it in social studies, that spark can come from anywhere. And we have to give ourselves as teachers and our students the breathing room to grab that and explore the mathematics, because that's ultimately what teaching math for application, for sense making, for college and career readiness, which sounds grandiose when we're talking about primary students, but that's really the beginning of
2: it it's mathematizing
1: <laughs> it's mathematizing
0: and you know if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking about how do i do this in my classroom and like it just sounds like it's it's too overwhelming to think about completely shifting how you might be doing things right now then consider like in this whatever unit you're in right now to just try it one time in that unit and just see just see how it feels and how it's different from the way that you might usually engage students and, and see how the students feel about it and how they're reacting and how um, how they're like getting into that flow of, um, of thinking and and actually doing math. And just like, you know, give yourself that experience and reflect on it. And then try it once for the next unit and say, or maybe try it twice for the next unit and just start off small, make small changes every day. One of my favorite lines from your book is on page 17. And it says, remember, when the focus is on mathematizing, finding a solution is not the same as finding the answer. A solution is a representation of the problem that reveals how it can be solved. The answer comes after. And so I've highlighted that. I've like added my own notes in the side. And I just think that this is a message that teachers, administrators, like coaches, parents, just everybody needs to keep hearing this message. And one way that I have found helpful in relaying this message is to continue to unpack the five modes of representation, which we've talked about in previous podcasts about the concrete, representational, and abstract. But for those who may not be familiar, can you give an overview of these representations?
2: Sure. Um. So the... There's a couple ways of thinking about representation. And you've mentioned the concrete representational abstract. If you go back and actually read the original source, um, source writing for the person who came up with that idea, his intention really wasn't so much that we would always be linear about it, that we would go from concrete, then we'd make pictures, and then we'd write equations. But that wasn't the intention. The intention was it would be a bit more cyclical that you might start with a concrete object and then you draw a picture of it and then come back to it and make a connection to it in its concrete form. And then you'd write the equation and then you'd circle back and say, well, in this equation, here's a five. Can you show me where the five is in the blocks that you have at your table? Can you show me where you see the five in your picture? The intention was always to be more rounded about this and not always moving in that direction. And so this idea was picked up also, and we use a slightly different model, even though this concrete representational abstract is a really important one. We talk about one that actually has five parts. And so it includes a concrete, it includes a picture, and it includes representing things in symbolic form as well, but we also think about the context. And obviously we've been talking about context quite a bit, but we consider the context of the problem one of the representations that we always come back to. So I see you have a five in your equation. Can you tell me what that means in the problem? Tell me again, tell me in words how that works. And that brings up another representation that we want to engage with students is their verbal connection with what they're doing. So I see that you've acted this problem out. Could you tell me what you did? Show me with your counters what happened in the story. And we want to see students say, Okay, we have nine children in the classroom and six more come in. We want to see nine counters on in front of them and six more added to it because that's quite literally a translation from the context using language and then translating it into the objects. That's three modes of representation that students can pick up on right away just with what's in front of them at their desks. And if you ask them then to record it as a picture, they have to really think about, well, this is a starting with nine and six more come in. How are you gonna say that on a flat piece of paper? And if students are truly getting into these contexts and understanding that this is an action and I have to do something about that, they might circle the six counters in the picture and point to the other nine and say, look, these have to come together. It's really important for us to monitor that students are using these counters to represent what's going on and you know, talking about how we can do that with arrows and marks and just showing movement some sort of way. When we do that, we're bringing together five different representations, and what we're doing is what we call translating between them every time a student can say, see in my picture, this is my friend bringing another a puppy to a situation, whatever it happens to be, that they are using all these different modes and moving between them in a way that makes sense to them.
1: When the effective teaching practices talk about use and connect multiple representations, I think sometimes it's easier for us as teachers to use the representations. We're going to model this with manipulatives now and that almost behaves as a silo now we're going to draw a picture now we're going to write an equation or a number sentence that and connect part that kim was emphasizing so much in her talk is really critical to developing that mathematical comprehension and sense making in the sandbox because it's how students begin to understand when i see a problem like five ed three even if it's absent any context It's a naked number computation problem for a moment. In order to help me make sense of it, I can give it a context. I can picture what I might do with a 10 frame. I can picture this as I have five cars and my friend gives me three more. Or there are five children in the stands and three playing basketball. How many people are there? Whatever the situation is, I can choose that. And by making those connections, we really develop deep understanding It's not just surface knowledge of the computation, but it's deep understanding of what's happening mathematically and that building those connections, that translation part is is critical to that. It's another place that I think teachers can say, I'm going to take one action, one step. When we use manipulatives and draw a picture, I'm going to ask students to make a connection between the two. When I have a word problem and they write a a number sentence, I'm going to ask them to connect the two.
2: One thing you can look for when you're observing students using manipulatives, for example, I'm going to go back to that problem of nine counters plus six counters. Let's say it is children in the classroom and six more coming into the classroom. What I watch for is the student can model the add-in nine and then they can model the add-in six and then over on the side they write an equal sign and then they make a pile of 15 counters. and while that looks correct it may not be reflective of the kinds of thinking we want to see because in that situation this is a joining these are things coming together so when the six come in and join the nine they become together 15. by representing the 15 over on the side we no longer have a sense does this student see that within that 15 is the nine and the six that came and joined it do they see that and that's something to watch for Um, To see if your students are doing it that way or if they are literally acting it out.
0: Thank you both for those additional small chunks or small goals for teachers to grab onto because it is it is like just starting small and thinking about building on each day. It just makes everything more manageable. So we had been talking a lot about the context, and then um, I wrote down that idea of translating between modes. And another theme that you will lift out of each chapter is the intentional strategy of Analyzing student work to um, to deepen not only specific content knowledge for teachers, but to also enhance their pedagogical knowledge. And the charts that you will have in each of the chapters are clear and they're really simple. They're just three rows. So the top the top one is for a picture of the student work, and then the second row is for the teacher's response to the work. And then the third row is it has a QR code for anyone who is reading to just take their phone and um connect it connects them to a video response for this. So I've also seen on Twitter your posts about the mathematizing story maps. And so uh, that's even another layer that you add to your model. So can you tell us how we might use? those maps and um, how teachers could use them if they're in lower elementary and also if they happen to be in upper elementary.
1: We thought about the story maps as the next layer, really, as you described it, Desiree, of how do we put this model and this way of thinking about problem solving and mathematizing and, and the sandbox into action in a classroom? When we wrote the books, a lot of that writing and thinking is about helping teachers get their heads around what are the different jobs of the operations and what, what do those jobs look like in context, in samples of student work, in potential word problems, in some of the subtle differences that you can think about. And those books are written to develop teacher thinking. And to launch teachers down this road that that we're talking about today. How do I think more deeply about sense making and mathematizing so that word problems have value in and of themselves? They're not just narrative computation as they sometimes appear. The story maps are the next step in that journey because they're a tool that teachers and students both can use in that mathematizing sandbox, We know that each of the operations has several jobs. We've been talking today about two jobs of subtraction. One is that notion of taking away, and another is that notion of difference or distance. What the story map does is model for students. In the case of taking away, here's a starting value, a space on a mat where I might put counters to represent the nine cars that I had at the beginning. Something leaves. So I've got another circle where I can slide away the four that I lost and then the remainder come over as what I have left at the end, the starting value, the change that happens and then, and then the result. The story map provides that underlying structure that in the long run, we want children and adults to see for themselves. But in order to do that, we have to provide some scaffolding. We have to provide some support. So as we've been sharing the story maps uh, through the website and through Twitter, we're thinking about for each of the jobs of the operation, what does a story map look like? How can you map what's happening in this problem? The same way you might map a narrative story in language arts where the action rises and there's a climax and then it, it falls and resolves. Math stories don't follow that same pattern, but they have their own pattern. So we're representing those. We're talking about what's happening there, providing some examples and some problems teachers can explore that have values where the thinking is about finding the math, not worrying about the computation, because we want to make sure we keep kids' energy on understanding the work of the operations on understanding what's happening in the problem where the mathematizing is, not getting bogged down in the arithmetic or the computation.
0: Thank you for that. And as you were talking, I was thinking about potential professional learning for teachers and just taking one of these story maps and getting into the sandbox to, to work with teachers or taking one of those charts I was talking about earlier to um, to think through and to analyze, to get in a small group with like maybe your your teaching partners or maybe even like the grade above you or the grade below to just to get more conversations going because that analyzing student work is such a powerful practice and it, it instantly makes you question. So then you're you're reflecting and you're deepening and you're, you're asking more questions and you're getting more curious yourself about some of these mathematical concepts that maybe you thought you understood. But then there's there's so much that goes into understanding elementary mathematics. And we don't always give it enough credit of just how uh, rich and robust the subject area really is.
1: There's a lot there. And I love your idea, Desiree, of looking at some student work at, at really diving in and thinking about what does this tell us about how we think and how the kids think about these ideas. The other idea that I'll, I'll pose for a, the broader community is that these story maps and these underlying structures work beyond basic facts and the initial introduction of the operations. We want children to see that as they move from learning to add and subtract whole numbers in the primary grades and they move to intermediate grades where they're thinking about larger whole numbers and fractions and decimals, even to middle school where they're thinking about integers and algebraic expressions, the use of that common story map can help students see the vertical coherence, see the flow that adding is still adding and the kinds of situations that require addition haven't changed. We just have a whole lot more flavors of numbers in our toolbox. There's a lot more we can talk about now because we know about quantities that aren't whole numbers, or we know about quantities that are less than zero, or we know how to describe a quantity we don't know yet. But the underlying structure is the same. So that, that dive of exploration that individual teachers can do at their own grade le- grade level can also be really powerful as we think about it vertically.
2: That's one of the things that people have asked us as well, I, I can't use your, your story maps information because those are not numbers that my students need to be working in. Our, our response is typically, you're right, we didn't write them with that, but we wrote them so that you could learn the general process of understanding how these story narratives work. And then once students have some attention paid to that, because they really do need to stop and pay attention. Well, kind of problem is this this is a joining problem so it looks like this it behaves like this this is what's gonna happen well next week we're gonna do one and a half plus two and a quarter and now my upper grade students are like oh I see it's the same thing and so that's our goal is to to give teachers all of you an opportunity to teach the structures and then you apply the numbers that are working for you at that particular point in your your units
0: uh, there are so many other questions that I could ask you all right now about this book and about this series, but I just want to make sure that we lift out one other idea for the listeners today, and that's the idea of models of learning and models for learning. So what is the difference here? And uh, can you just expand on that for us? Sure. Um-
2: this it seems like a small difference, but I we've already touched on this a little bit. A model of learning is a representation of what a student did, what they thought. It's static; it just kind of sits there. It's um, it may be what you see when you walk up to a student desk who's already done the problem. You can look down and you can see that they've modeled this add-in and that add-in, and then there's a a sum at the end. What you don't know is what sense is the student making of that. So if a model of of learning is a snapshot, it's a thing you could take a picture of, you could put in a portfolio. It is, um, I sometimes call it like performance you know, some students will do a model of learning as a, a performance see i know how to do this but a model for learning is actually a working tool it's it's something a student owns it's something a student can use productively at any point point. and one example we might think about is if we think about three i'm going to use an older grade example three times one half and so if we think about three times one half if i could say Here's three, and then there's one half, and then over here is going to be the answer of one and a half. Everything's good. And it looks fine, and the teacher says, oh, perfect. But if we watch a student do it, we might see a student lay out three tiles and then a half tile, and then write as as an answer one and a half. Do they really understand what it means to take one half of three or three copies of one half? I don't know. I don't know. And so as a teacher, I would say, what does it mean to multiply by a half? Or what does it mean to multiply three by a half or half times three? And I'd want to see them either take three pieces and break it in half and make two equal parts. Then I would know that they understand what the relationships are. That model then becomes a tool for learning rather than a tool of their learning, just a picture of what's going on. So we're looking for a productive, active, sense-making tool.
0: I also am thinking that maybe the the model for learning can be just another, like an added supplement for when you're actually interviewing students. And, you know, when you're using one of those formative assessment practices um, in the The formative from the formative five, you can you can add on these models for learning and just have an even richer discussion to help kids make even more connections and to to deepen everyone's learning.
1: It really brings us back to that that notion of translation again. It's not that the model sits static and alone as I built this equation but rather it's i can connect and explain what's going on i can show you the work that one half is doing i can show you that that three and even if i had to imagine a context i can i can tell you what that might be it comes yeah. back to translating and sense making because ultimately this mathematical comprehension and and mathematizing is what all of this work is about
0: I really love the charts that you have throughout the book that give you, they give the teacher examples of context. And then they, so the one I'm looking at right now is on page 80. So it has the context. One example is a video game. And then the second column is the, is for you to add in the beginning value and then The third column says the action in the story or the change. And then the last column is for the ending value or the results. And then just having that as a a running chart in your room, I found was that, like, it was just so profound to me because that's like, you know, when you are just talking with your kids, you can say, oh, you know, like, that might be something great for us to add. And you can potentially add it in the moment to the chart, you don't have to get into the sandbox right at that moment, but you have it there ready to go for the next time you do decide to jump in. And it just, I find it like getting more, um, like adding to student choice and voice. And like, I see like opportunities to get even more into student identity and just like honoring backgrounds and just, from a simple four column chart but it's just how you all are talking about it and the different how you've organized it's just really powerful
2: we left empty spaces at the end of each of those tables on purpose um, so that you could do that you could continue the thinking and add situations that make sense for you
1: well and And I think it's important in two ways. Part of it is what you described, Desiree. It's capturing the moment as it happens in a classroom community. The other thing that's important is that it gives teachers an opportunity to think about what are contexts that are relevant for my students. Because I can promise that when you read a word problem, from a textbook, from a supplement, from a page you found online, somebody thought about that context and put put good faith effort into, is this a useful context? It is utterly impossible for teams of writers in whatever place to come up with problems that are always relevant for all kids. And so both teachers need to capture these moments as they happen. And sometimes feel free if you look at a problem in the materials you're using and say, this has nothing to do with the reality of my children in my classroom right now. We want to give teachers the tools to say, here's the math I want to protect. And here's how I can change the context so that it's no longer this random abstract thing, but it has some meaning and some connection for my classroom. Teachers need to have the freedom and the confidence to make those adjustments. We we all hope they don't have to make them too often because then it becomes one more thing. But we know that, that when we use pre, used pre-created materials, whether it's the problems with our story maps or things that might be in a core curriculum or any other source, it's not going to hit 100% of the time. And so we want to give teachers the tools and the ways of thinking to make those adjustments where it's most important. And I just
2: want to make that literacy connection again. And I I taught um, language and reading for the first time last year. I've always been a math teacher, but when I taught fifth grade last year, I was responsible for all four subjects. And what I found is that the skills that I've been working on to mathematize everything around me and to bring it to my students. I was now scientifying, if you will. I was looking for examples that my students would find familiar. And I know all you teachers out there do this. This is what we do best is we find things around us and we make sense of them, and we bring it into our classroom in a way that our students can understand it, either through literature or through images that are so available to us now. What we're asking and giving a world a new world of possibilities is that you could do this with math too. You can mathematize the most basic things. Any picture book you're looking at, anything your students do, there's a a potential to turn it into something meaningful to mathematize.
0: Thank you both so much for being here today and for talking to us about Mathematize It.
1: Thanks so much, Desiree. It's been great to talk with you. Thank you. Enjoyed meeting you today, too.
0: Thank you. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Keep the Kids Math Talk conversation going. You can always tweet me with questions or comments using the handle at Kids Math Talk. You can also head to my website, kidsmathtalk.com slash podcast, for previous episodes. Leave us a review on Apple or wherever you find your podcast. And join us next time for another episode of Kids Math Talk.